You're listening to Women Making Waves radio show and podcast, brought to you by Susie Thorpe and Linda Ness. This show is all about women doing extraordinary things. Have you ever had moments in your life, Susie, where something changes? Yes, I suppose when I had my babies, that's when life changed. I yes, knew I that think was... for most people, <laughs> most people, that is the moment, isn't it? It is. Oh, gosh, yes. But there's other things as well. Mm. Other than that, just decisions that you make, and it can be just a, a small decision at 11 o'clock at night after two G&Ts, or it can be something that you actually sit down and, and really plan and think about. Sometimes the best ones, though, are just those spare-of-the-moment changes. I think maybe that's why I decided to go into radio, because I took a step back. There was yes. so much going on around. Me too. Mm. Yeah. I thought, oh, I'd quite like to do that. That sounds quite interesting. Did you feel the same then? Well, I had much more time in my hands, having had a very, very mm. busy working life. Suddenly I had far more time in my hands and I decided that instead of going back into a very busy job, I wanted to do other things as well. And I was travelling up to London the whole time and I was I was either commuting or working. And even when I was commuting, I was working. So I decided I wanted to really change things. I really wanted to shake it up. I couldn't make up my mind. I wanted. I thought about writing, you know. I'd always been uh, keen on, on writing stories. Well, you've done that before, haven't you? You, oh, you grew up doing some writing. Yeah, I've done bits. Successfully. Bits, well, bits of writing before. But I decided, well, rather than doing that, why not, why not talk about stuff? But yeah, there's that moment but where, you, where you have to sit and really think, right, I've reached a, a crossroads in my life. What am I going to do? Age is quite an interesting part to it, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I think you reach a certain age that you think, oh, should I have done this? Should I have gone back and done this or do I need to do more? Yeah. We yeah. put a lot of pressure on ourselves, don't we? I don't want to be lying there in my dotage <laughs> <laughs> with a few hours to go and thinking, oh, I wish. I... And I've no doubt we all will anyway. There's always stuff that, you, you know, you'd want maybe to change. The lockdown, I think, for a lot of people has made people think about where they want to go and what they want yes. to do. And yes. I know some people that have moved to Cornwall. They've literally upstick from London and they've gone to Cornwall. There's that moment, do, not only did you change life, but you changed location and where you live. But yeah. I also want to find out if people have actually dabbled in a new skill or learnt a new skill in that time. And I think... Most or of career. Or oh, career, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Is that sort of cross I've always moment. fancied, you know, I've always fancied setting up a B&B. &B. Ah, right. Yeah. So you want to Is that something people? you've ever thought about? Uh, a lot no. of people think about that. I'm always watching that four in a bed. Not that I would ever take part in that. I think it's just ludicrous. <laughs> I don't know if you ever watched four in a bed about bed and breakfast owners. Well, one of them actually that was being interviewed was up up the road from here so i i know i know the guy but no i i i wouldn't want to do that no i wouldn't want to do the four in a bed no. thing but no. bed and breakfast <laughs> generally maybe a retirement scheme thing you know yeah but you see things i have constantly made breakfast for a long <laughs> long time without any I, payment yeah without any payment and i think no i've done that i need to do something uh, i think for you myself. might be right it's bad yeah. enough being criticized by your own family about the way the egg turns out never mind blooming paying guests i know exactly <laughs> and actually it makes it more of an moment an issue if i don't get the eggs right at least that it's take it or leave it if i give it to my family but i couldn't do that for a bed and breakfast so our guests today 
Both of them very inspirational people. Isabella Moore, CBE, who is a businesswoman, and she talks about a couple of times in her life where she's made decisions that have affected and impacted the rest of her uh, her working life or her, her life indeed. And Paul Looker was diagnosed with breast cancer after a routine operation. And to help her navigate two gruelling years of treatment, she worked on exercise regime and good diet climbing Ben Nevis while also still having treatment as well. So two really interesting guests again. Women Making Waves on Cambridge 105 Radio. We are very pleased to be joined by Isabella Moore, CBE. Isabella has worked in the translation industry for many years and founded Comtech Translations Limited in 1981. Isabella was the first female president of the British Chamber of Commerce, the vice president of the Euro Chambers and the CEO of the National Centre for Languages. She also leads the initiative Older Women in Business, which looks at issues faced by older female entrepreneurs. Thank you very much for joining us today, Isabella. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Well, you're welcome. I'm really interested to have this conversation. So, you work in, in translations. Did you live abroad when you were growing up or did you simply have a love of learning languages? Well, it's it's quite an interesting story, really. I'm half Polish and mm-hmm. my mother's Polish and my father, as you can hear, was, he's no longer alive, was Scottish. My mother and father met after the war and uh, settled in Edinburgh. He was from Edinburgh. And uh, at the age of five, unfortunately, they went their separate ways. And my mother set up, uh, she was uh, had a partner who was Polish. Mm-hmm. My grandmother, who was a teacher in Poland, um, came over to help with my brother and I. And so from a very early age, I heard a lot of Polish. I think, you know, when you're sort of seven or eight, you want to be as everyone else. So I was never keen to speak Polish, but I understood it. So what happened was that uh, my mother would say something to me in Polish and I would answer back in English. So Uh that knowledge of language was there. And then just to cut a a long story short, I mean, I, I went to university. I went to Queen's College in Dundee, which at the time was part of St Andrew's University. But my grandmother, who then returned back to Poland and sadly died, and I went with my mother to her funeral. It was the first time I'd flown in a plane. This was in the sort of late 1960s. And you know it is when you suddenly make a decision about your life that changes the whole course of your life. And there in Warsaw, I decided not to go back to Edinburgh, but just have, I suppose, a gap year uh, before I decided what to do. So I went off to Vienna and spent a very interesting year in Vienna learning German and met some sort of friends there who were Polish. And then by accident, I heard that there was this opportunity that if you were of Polish origin, you could apply for a grant to study at Warsaw University. And so I applied for it and I applied for a place. I was able to say that I'd been given a place at St Andrews. And, you know, at the age of 18, I ended up at Warsaw University studying, would you believe, history of art? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And um, that was really how that knowledge of Polish sort of changed the whole course of my life because... You know, I had to learn it. I mean, I was attending lectures. I had to write my final thesis in Polish, which, by the way, was on the 
church pulpits in Central Europe. Wow. <laughs> in the 18th and 19th century. And, uh, and I'd started off actually in uh, St. Andrews um, studying social sciences at, at, in the sort of late 1960s. That was a really sort of fashionable subject to um, study. And there I was. So I spoke very good Polish by the time I, I had finished. And by that time, my mother had actually moved back to Poland. Sadly, her partner had a stroke and, and also my brother um, was a... Um, he started at a young age um, to take drugs. It was the time in Edinburgh where this was quite rife. Mm. And he also died of a drug overdose. Oof. And I think my mother decided to come back to Poland. And hence, that's why she still lives in Poland. And I'm here in Poland now. She's 100. But anyway, so at the time, I had spent a few years studying history of art and then, I suppose at that time, there weren't many people with British passports who spoke fluent Polish. Yeah. And I was offered a job uh, by an American construction company who were building a meat processing plant outside Warsaw. And I was given the job, first of all, as a translator interpreter. And I had no idea at the time of any of the terminology around meat processing <laughs> and construction. But there I was, and then the lady who was actually running the site um, had to go back to the States. It was an American company. And I was offered the job of site manager. So at the age of about 24, I was running a, a construction site with Swedes and Poles and Italians. Good grief. <laughs> and then and then afterwards, um, I was sort of headhunted by the British Embassy because Massey Ferguson, the tractor people, were setting up a big technology transfer company with the, a big uh, tractor manufacturing plant in Warsaw. And I was offered the job of running the liaison office there. And I took that job. And it was there that I met my husband of 40 odd years. And yeah, and for several years, I ran this liaison office. And through that, my knowledge of Polish from history of art turned to, first of all, it was meat processing and construction. Then it went on to the tractor industry and contract negotiation. Do you remember Poland was still a communist country at that time? Yes. And yes. so I used to be asked to sit in on all sorts of high level negotiations and, you know, my knowledge of the language went in a completely different direction. And so that's, in short, where my connection. I met my husband, came back to, to the UK. Um, he worked for Massey Ferguson. We settled down not far from Coventry in Warwickshire. And I then started to work with contractors who were selling to that tractor factory, translating documentation, interpreting for groups that were coming over and that's what really gave me the idea of setting up Comtech. That's how it all started. <laughs> wow, that is such an amazing and interesting story. I actually don't know where, where to start with asking <laughs> questions. I mean the first thing that I noticed was I know there were a lot of Polish men in Scotland after the war because yes. they, you know they came to fight with the free Poles. So I knew a lot of people with Polish fathers and Scottish mothers. Not the other Not way around. Exactly. Yeah, that, that's yeah. kind of interesting in itself. But wow, you must have been a very confident 18-year-old to have done the things you did. 
Well, actually, you know, when you think back on it, I mean, I was thinking, I mean, I have a daughter now who's 43 and I was thinking, I don't think I would have let her loose at 18. <laughs> but, you know, I don't know what it was. I think it was the 1960s. You just did your own thing. You know, you you you, you went off, you, you traveled. And in some ways, the world was a less dangerous place, I think. Yeah. I mean, you know, at the age of about 25, I remember we traveled all the way to the Iranian border with some friends when I finished university. And, you know, we traveled all the way to the Iranian border. Then we went down south into Syria. We hitchhiked from Aleppo to Damascus. And when I mean, you think about this in today's context, you would never do that, would you? I know. And oh, gosh, if your daughter wanted to do that, you'd be uh, you'd be really be... panicking, wouldn't you? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I know. No, I think you're right. It did feel a bit safer back yeah. then. I, I went yeah. traveling and went to Italy. I stayed in Sicily for a while. I had moments that were really dangerous in Naples, actually, when I was moving around on my own. And yet, somehow or other, it you kind of thought you'd be all right somehow. Yeah, exactly. Maybe it's just, you know, the confidence of youth. <laughs> but you started Comtech. Did you just see this gap in the market? I mean, well, I did. Um, there's something else to it. I mean, I, you know, I mentioned I have a daughter who's now 43 and she's managing director of Comtech. But at the time, I had to have the flexibility. I'd always worked and I suppose I felt that I didn't want to stop working. And so I looked for something that would give me the flexibility and we needed um, the income. So it's this sort of idea that you do something, you know, you set up in business out of necessity, really. So to me, this was a solution. When I first set the business up, I ran it from home. So it was a kitchen table industry at first, was it? It was. And, and, you know, in in those days, the translation industry was very much that. You know, I remember, you know, picking my daughter up from school and putting her into my, I had a green mini at the time, and delivering the translations to um, one of our translators and then picking something up and then checking it and taking it over to the customer. And it was all done like that. You know, you didn't have email or anything like that. So, you know, it was very much a cottage industry type of business. It's not like that anymore. I mean, now when I think about it, it is a very high tech industry where, you know, you're sorting out all sorts of technical issues as well as the language side of it. You know, I remember one translator, very good translator, but used to send it in a tiny little envelope and it would come all creased and folded. This customer wanted it very quickly. So I, I remember taking the ironing board and ironing it. <laughs> So that I could get it to this customer because, you know, I I mean, I would have to retype the whole thing again. And he wanted it urgently. And did you start employing people just because it got far too much for you to do? Yes, I think, I think you know, one of the things that I did, and I think that's hugely important, is that when you set up your own business, I think you need to realise what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are. And you need to then subcontract the areas of the business that you yourself feel less inclined to do you don't like doing or you're not so good about it and Mm -hmm. in my case it was around the the invoicing and the um, administrative side so that was where I started to look for help first and then develop this network of linguists that I could call on as and when a particular language combination was required and my job was to go out and get the business 
basically. And I'd worked as an interpreter. I think my preference was always to interpret rather than sit and type out translations. I like that contact with people. Mm -hmm. And so that helped me again to start selling. I mean, I'd never sold anything. You had to go out to the customers and you had to persuade them that I could provide the sort of service that they wanted. And that's when I started to get involved with our Chamber of Commerce because I realised that my customers are probably going to be members of the Chamber of Commerce. So I would go to events. I mean, this is going back some time. I would go to events where, you know, the only other woman there was serving the sandwiches. But, uh, you (laughs) know, you still had to do it and you Mm -hmm. had to go in there. And, you know, obviously I started to sort of build up a good customer base. And I always liked the contact and the issues that were coming up, you know, small business issues, you know, what's it like? What are the, the problems? And so I was asked whether I'd be interested to become a member of the chamber board. And I did. And, you know, I saw it both as a means of of learning new things, but also of helping me with my business. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was how my sort of involvement with the Chamber of Commerce movement started. And you became the first female president of the British Chamber of Commerce. Yes, I How, did. Did that just come about because you made lots of contacts and they could see that you were very, very capable when you were voted into that role, presumably? Well, I mean, I'd started, I became the first female president of the Coventry and Warwickshire Chamber. And then it was it's just really your involvement, your enthusiasm, you know, your interest in the issues that were coming up. And then we also had a group of chambers that were the West Midlands Chambers. So they asked if I would like to be on that board. So I did. And then I was voted in as chair. And then as often happens, you know, then there was a vacancy on the British Chamber of Commerce board and I was voted on and then and then became vice president and and then president. <laughs> and you didn't have any opposition. There wasn't any chauvinism about at the time. I'm assuming this was a while back. I was president 2002 to 2004. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know, I never have felt that. I mean, you know, even in my professional life, sometimes, you know, if we were offering our services and some guy would say it is very technical you know and you know you would explain that you know all our translators interpreters are specialists in their particular area but now you actually I mean you see how things have moved on at the British Chambers of Commerce you have both the president the director general and the chair all women Mm -hmm. So, Brilliant. you know, things have moved on a lot in those mm-hmm. years, a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. you know, we're talking nearly 20 years. So yeah. you know, the situation has changed very, very significantly, I think. Yeah, well, I think it has. I remember I was a head of IT about 20, 20 odd years ago. And I once had someone on the phone asking if I could put him through to my boss. <laughs> yeah, well, I remember when Laughable. I was, um, I know when I was, um, I was, uh, you know, vice chair of the European Chambers of Commerce. And every year there was a sort of bash in some capital or other of this network of chambers. And this particular year, we went to Rome. And there was a, a programme for the spouses 
one of the events for the spouses was um, a, a tour around the Fendi fashion house, which was, you know, fantastic. And I remember we were all standing around and somebody came up and was ushering me into this group. And I'm going, no, no, I am the vice president. And my husband was there, you know, and he said it was absolutely fantastic going for a tour around the Fendi fashion house. But they just couldn't couldn't get their head round that, you know, no, it wasn't my husband. It was me. You know, in this. Yeah, you aren't one of the waves. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But, you know, that's, as I say, that's 20 years ago. And I think the situation now has changed hugely. I I agree, actually. I think it's a heck of a lot better. I think people think there's still a problem, but that's people that are young and don't remember the way it used to be. Exactly, 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 exactly. Looking at your CV, you seem to be very interested in working with women entrepreneurs in particular. That's a feeling that I got. Yeah, well, as president of the British Chambers of Commerce, every president, they're allowed two areas that they would like to sort of focus on in their term of office. And I chose, uh, obviously, languages and language skills and promoting that. But the second area was around women's entrepreneurship. And at the time, Patricia Hewitt um, had responsibility in Tony Blair's government for women. Mm -hmm. She initiated, spearheaded a report on the state of women's entrepreneurship in the UK. And it was, I think, the first report of this kind. It was an important report and it gave a sort of point of reference So it was at that time, and so I created a group within the British Chambers of Commerce, particularly looking at women's entrepreneurship. I went on to chair a couple of panels Mm. and uh, worked actually with a lady who is from your neck of the woods, Jackie Breerton. She founded Women's Enterprise Scotland a few years ago. You know, we worked together on um, making the economic case for support for women's entrepreneurship. You know, and and then I I sat on the board for the West Midlands Regional Development Board. I did two terms of office there. And that was when I, I really pushed for recognition that there are specific issues. Yes, you can say there are commonalities, but there are specific issues that women face when setting up in business and try to get as much support. Yeah, so I've always tried to um, support the cause, Mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. Yeah, no, which is great. And then you started the Older Women in Business Initiative. That's really interesting. You know, we kind of think of entrepreneurs as being somebody in their early 20s, you know, some smart people out of uni. And and it's not always the case, is it? Yeah, well, how I started on that was that Well, I sold the company in 2002 and uh, went off to work as chief executive of SILT, the National Centre for Languages, which was a government quangle, but it was was there to help promote language learning, both in schools and, you know, the use of language skills in business. And um, as I say, I sold it. And then I had a call Uh, At the time, my daughter was working for a management consultancy down in London. And I had a call from the people that bought the company from it. It was an American company. And uh, they said, well, look, we feel that we're not taking it in the right direction. I think we want to sell the company. And they said, you know, do you know anyone that might want to buy it? And it was just like a eureka moment. As I said, you know, right at the very beginning, there's a couple of things in your life that you do that are major that seemed to turn the course of your life. 
Mm. And, you know, I just had a eureka moment. And I thought, I wonder if Sophie, my daughter, might be interested in buying the business back from these people. And I remember ringing her and saying, look, I've had this call. I certainly wouldn't want it. I don't want to sort of do it on my own. Would you be interested in buying it back with me? And she said, yes, <laughs> right, just like that. And uh, we ended up buying it back for a lot less than we'd sold it for. So that was good. Oh, that's good. <laughs> and I had sort of, you know, I'd spent four years working uh, for this Quango. And I think probably I'm more suited to a sort of entrepreneurial environment. I just, you know, I just preferred the flexibility of that. And so we did it. We bought it back again. And since then, I mean, we bought it back in not a very good state and grown it back to a multi-million pound company, which is run now by my daughter, Sophie. She's the managing director. It's a family business. My son-in-law is technical director and I chair our board and have responsibility for all the sort of quality certification and standards. And meanwhile, we've also bought a couple of other companies and, and that's where we are. So... At the age of 60, I found myself back in business, basically, <laughs> and experiencing, I suppose, the sort of problems that were different to the ones that I had when I was in my 30s when I, I, I started the business. Grandchildren came along quickly. I had my elderly mother in Poland that I had to keep an eye on. And so I started to sort of really basically take an interest in older entrepreneurship. What are the issues? And I think also what I'd experienced, I think, at the age of 60s, you, you do get to a point in your life where you sort of lose your identity and a little bit of your confidence, I think. Mm -hmm. And I could no longer go out and sell to the same people that I used to do because they were about 30 years younger than me, basically. <laughs> Do you and, feel you become a little bit invisible when you're older? Well, exactly. You know, whereas I just powered through my life, I suddenly became aware of my age. So that got me going. And I, I had a conversation with Professor Mark Hart at Aston Business School. And uh, he said, why don't you come and do some research on this, doctoral research on this issue? Because it's, the, I hate the term, they call it in all the research papers, senior entrepreneurship. <laughs> but I hate it. I say entrepreneurship in later life, um, which I think is, is is anyone over the age of 50. And so I, I sort of thought, that's really interesting. So that's what I did. And what my research was, was looking at the sort of gendered aspects of, first of all, why on earth would you want to become an entrepreneur in, in later life? And, you know, I found there were issues that were, you know, there were a lot of commonalities between the men and women. I interviewed a sort of same amount of men as women all over the UK. And, you know, yes, there were many commonalities, but there were also very distinct differences. I mean, for example, quite astonishingly, the men that I interviewed, one of the reasons why they wanted to set up in business was because they were concerned about their mental and physical health. They saw oh. that setting up in business would sort of preserve them a bit longer, basically. <laughs> whereas, whereas the women didn't have any issues like that. So I looked at why, and then I looked at societal attitudes and norms, which was really interesting because... 
you know, what you see is in general, again, common to older men and women is that it's just exactly what you said. This entrepreneur identity is usually associated with people much younger. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people don't think about an older person as a business person or setting up a business. And what I saw when I interviewed all these people is that it's sort of regarded as slightly deviant, you know, that what what on earth are you wanting to set up a business? You know, you should be putting your feet up. And then that is multiplied by a number of times in the attitude towards women, where the sort of perspective of their gender roles in society, that once you've reached a certain age, you're either looking after grandchildren or you're looking after elderly relatives. And what on earth would you be wanting to set up a business for? You know, your role is to sort of support everyone else. And that came across very uh, strongly. And then I looked at a third dimension was around what sort of barriers there are to get the sort of resources that older people need. And for example, a common issue was the fact that they all thought that the sort of business support out there was absolutely unsuitable for them. They didn't feel that it really addressed their specific needs and some of the issues, you know, as I mentioned, around confidence, Mm -hmm. the fact that the sort of question of whether their skills are transferable and whether they can be used in a new business. And there needs to be a sort of bit more support along the way before you actually get to the point of, you know, business planning and cash flow forecasts and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. It is fascinating, actually. I think this this business of what you said about men wanting something to do. Women never are short of anything to no. do. We're always busy and we're always doing things. We never really sit still. Whereas men, when they retire, often just completely deteriorate. Yeah, they sit exactly. around. Yes. Exactly. And so they see possibly setting up some sort of business as a means of, of maintaining their mental and physical health. And so there is, apart from obviously the economic benefits, because what um, also came across strongly was that the women that I interviewed more often wanted to set up in business out of necessity, because oh, very really? often their retirement incomes were just not sufficient because the men, most of them had pensions because they had no uninterrupted Mm -hmm. work. Mm -hmm. They'd just gone through their lives working, accumulated, whatever, and then had their pensions. Whereas most of the women didn't have that. And so in some ways they were also less risk averse. They had nothing to lose. I mean, one lady I remember, she runs this really successful, she's set up two catering outlets and uh, runs them very successfully brought in her family to help and she said that um, her first loan from the bank she didn't know how to write a business plan didn't know how to you know put the figures together so she went and asked for a car loan she got the car (laughs) loan and used that to set her business up you know and it's just fantastic or I had another lady who's running this really successful downsizing company you know she helps people to sort of downsize and uh, um, at the time she was nearly retiring so she's probably retired now but she used to say that she would be running this company sitting in the evening doing you know getting all things together and her husband would come home and he'd still expect his tea on the table. But what made no. me laugh was that she said, but he never got it. Good. <laughs> 
So, you know, they're not, none of these women were victims. They negotiated that whole environment and they did it in such a way it was just really inspiring. You know, they knew they had to negotiate these sort of conflicts, but they did it and got their own way in the end, which is great. (laughs) You come over to me, Isabella, as somebody who says yes to things that come along, that you don't shy away from, from challenges. Would that be true? I think so. I think so. I think you just have to keep going. I mean, I'm going to be um, 73 in a couple of months time. In fact, next month, actually. You know, it's the challenge of doing something new, just getting it done. And, you know, what I saw from these women, too, is that they just accepted, you know, it's the passion, it's the drive, it's the interest that keeps you going in life, I think. You were awarded a CBE in 2004, the New Year's Honours List for Services to Industry and Languages. How did that feel? Well, it was a fantastic honour. I mean, I couldn't believe it. It was just fantastic. I went to the palace took my husband and my mother with me. And uh, I just was very, very proud. But I must say, my greatest achievement was doing this doctorate. Um, I'd I'd managed along along the way, I had an honorary doctorate from Aston and from Sheffield Hallam. And that was great, and I was very pleased. But actually doing this was, for me, one of my greatest, you know, I feel that you know, that's it. I'm not going to be doing any more qualifications anymore. <laughs> but I wouldn't I do put anything past you. <laughs> no, but I'm, I'm setting up, you know, I, I, I want to set up a foundation that will support older women in in business. And that's, the, that's what I'm in the process of organising now. I've really, really enjoyed talking to you, Isabella. It's been absolutely brilliant. And thank you for joining us in Women Making Waves and sharing your experience and your story. It's been brilliant. Well, thank you. Thank you for for listening to me. (laughs) Women Making Waves on Cambridge 105 Radio. So have you ever thought about climbing Ben Nevis then? No, <laughs> quite frankly, no, no, not, neither have I. <laughs> Paula Kerr did this, didn't she, Susie? She did indeed. And coming up after the break, we'll be talking to Paula Kerr, who was diagnosed with breast cancer after a routine operation. And we're going to be hearing all about how she's got through this and how she's written a new book. Cambridge 105 Radio. Cambridge Breakfast with Julian Clover and Lucy Malazzo. It's the breakfast show that's all about Cambridge. We've got the news. National and local. Travel updates. From the A14 to Milton Road and all stations to Cambridge. The people and the places. Plus guests in our Friday food club. Cambridge Juice. All the new things to do in the city. Our daily quiz. Oh yes, questions, questions with Lucian. And all request Jukebox Friday. And don't forget the coffee. Cambridge Breakfast with Julian Clover and Lucy Malazzo. Here with a fresh blend weekday mornings from 7. What's in your spare room? Christmas decorations? Maybe an old exercise bike? Could you give that room to a young person along with a fresh start? St Christopher's Fellowship is looking for people to become foster carers in Cambridgeshire to provide safe, caring homes for teenagers who need help. And because we've been working to improve young people's lives since 1870, you can trust that you're not on your own. You'll receive regular training, dedicated social worker support and space to share experiences with other carers. 
It's more than a spare room, it's a brighter future. Call 0800 234 6282 or visit stchris.org.uk fostering. St Christopher's, creating brighter futures. Hi, Pam here. Are you tired of the same old shops? Drop into Fantasia on Mill Road near Parker's Peace. Enter our treasure cave full of fine clothing and exotic homewares. Natural materials, uplifting ambiance, mood improvement guaranteed. Perk up your wardrobe, your home, your life. Dare to shop different. Fantasia, 64 Mill Road, Cambridge. Fantasia.uk.com. For opening times, please see fantasia.uk.com. Cambridge 105 Radio. was a successful journalist when she was diagnosed with breast cancer after a routine operation. To help her through two years of treatment and to maintain family life, she relied on a nutrient-dense diet, regular exercise and a positive mindset. And impressively, between trips to the chemotherapy ward, she climbed Ben Nevis. Paula has written a book, Fitter Stronger, Resilience, If You're Going Through Hell, Keep Going, and we're interested in finding out more about her. Welcome to Women Making Waves, Paula. Hello. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're very welcome, Paula. Now, it sounds like you've already been through hell, but let's go back a bit. What was your life like when you were growing up? Were you always quite sporty? I was interested in sport, but can I just say that I didn't just rely on diet and exercise to get through cancer. I also relied on chemotherapy and surgery and of lots course. of other things. But yes, as a child, I wasn't desperately sporty, but I was kind of keen. So I was a very keen swimmer. I used to love swimming distance and I was quite good at that. So I used to do quite a lot of that. I was in the school netball team. But I wasn't naturally athletic, I suppose. I just found the little things that I, I did okay at and, um, and carried on with those and tried to get a bit better. And you were a freelance journalist for 25 years, a long time. Was that work that you enjoyed? Yeah, it's just under 30 years. And yeah, it was just the time of my life. I had the best time with that job. It meant I got to do experiences that you couldn't buy. I got to see people at their very best and at their very worst, at their very happiest at their most angry covered lots and lots of different stories in different parts of the world and yeah it was an extraordinary time I was very lucky I know I've often thought that must be the most amazing work actually because it's just the the opportunity to get to ask people things that you wouldn't really normally be able to do it's great Exactly. I kind of was proud of the fact that however difficult that situation was and sometimes it was contentious that we would always part with a smile and a handshake. And I, I was proud of that, that there was a respect on both sides, I hope. Paula, tell us about your cancer diagnosis. That must have been a shock. I had had some routine surgery. I'd gone in to have the folder closed um, and to be told I'd healed up nicely and to be on my way. That wasn't quite the conversation. The conversation was that they'd found some abnormal cells and they needed further investigation and what that really meant was that they suspected cancer. So initially, I actually wasn't shocked. I was just sitting there thinking, well, that can't be right. And we left the room. I ended up having to go into another room to talk to the cancer nurse about the consequences and what happened next. 
And I was doing really, really well. And then she turned around and said, have you got any children? And at that point, um, yeah, at that point, I kind mm. of went to pieces and there were quite a few tears. But, you know, I just tried to pull it back together and to try and look at what was in front of me and to try not too hard at that point to catastrophize. So you claimed Ben Nevis. Was that when you were in the middle of treatment, Paula, or once you'd finished? So my treatment meant six rounds of fairly strong um, chemotherapy. It was an aggressive cancer. Then after those six rounds of chemotherapy came 18 more rounds, but those were of a targeted chemotherapy called Herceptin. But they still meant every three weeks going back into the chemo ward for a day and sitting there and watching this stuff drip into my system. By the time I'd got to the end of the tough chemotherapy and I was halfway through Herceptin, which had less side effects, I just was starting to feel stronger, a bit more positive. The light at the end of the tunnel, which had been quite dim, was starting to shine a little bit more brightly. And I was starting to think, you know what, I don't want to be defined by cancer. I don't want people thinking, oh, yeah, she's the girl who had cancer. I wanted to, them to think about, you know, all the other aspects of who I was. So I kind of thought I need to make a statement, maybe partly to them, but also very much to myself to prove that this body was coping, it was stronger than I thought it was, and it was going to be okay. When I was diagnosed, I'd been planning to climb Snowdon, and I was going to do it with a couple of friends, and I was really very angry that I had to not climb Snowdon. It was the first thing I had to cancel. Yeah, it made me mad as hell. And those friends very kindly said, listen, don't worry, leave it a year, wait until you feel stronger and we'll come up with you and, you know, we'll have a great day and we'll celebrate, it'd be brilliant. And as I got stronger and I was coming towards the end of that Herceptin treatment, so I was about two years down the line of going in and out of the chemo ward every three weeks, I got to the point where I was ready to climb that mountain and then I thought, you know what, if you're going to have a mountain, let's not mess around with Snowdon. Let's go to the biggest mountain in Britain <laughs> and let's really go for it and go for Ben Nevis. Had no idea what that really meant. Spoke to a couple of people who'd done it and they um, were at my gym and they looked at me and said, yeah, you'll, you'll be fine. So I took them at their word and started training for it a bit more seriously, going out on some very long hilly walks. We did Snowden as a kind of warm up for Ben Nevis, went with my kids and my husband and a couple of friends and we kind of used that as a bit of a warm up and then hit Ben Nevis with a big group of friends who were originally going to do Snowden with me and um, yeah, the looks on their faces when I said, hey, do you know what? I was thinking maybe not Snowden, maybe let's go to Ben Nevis and do that (laughs) and you know, there's a funny thing when you're ill, people will agree to anything. So they did. Bless their hearts. So off we went to the foot of Ben Nevis at Fort William. And I looked up at this mountain and this dirty great mountain with snow on the top in the middle of June was looking down at me. I just thought, well, okay, well, I'm not quite sure what I've taken on here, but whatever it is, it can't be any worse than the last two years. So, you know, let's give it a go. And um, I'd also raised quite a lot of money for a breast cancer charity. So there was no going back. I had to do it. And I just thought, if I keep just putting one foot in front of the other, which is what I've been trying to do for the last two years, then I'll have it. I'll get to the top of that mountain and we'll get back down and it'll be okay. Mm. So so that's what I did. So I had, I think, five more trips to the chemo ward to go. And I hated going into that chemo ward because it just made me feel vulnerable. 
and I was trying very hard not to feel vulnerable. And after I climbed Ben, ben Nevis, I went back into the chemo ward the following week and I was talking to one of the fabulous nurses in the chemo ward, an incredibly kind breed. And this wonderful woman said, so how's your week been? And I said, oh, it was good. I climbed Ben Nevis on Sunday. <laughs> she nearly fell over. She was just so shocked. But it was, we laughed and it was the first time I'd been able to walk back into that chemo ward feeling confident and with my head up and not feeling vulnerable and weak. Um, however strong you're feeling the day before or the day after, there's something, um, for me at least, about walking into that chemo ward, which made me kind of pr- feel pretty weak again. Is it kind of being hit by reality and maybe the rest of the time you can almost kind of pretend it's not happening? Everybody handles a diagnosis, the shock news of that and the treatment their own way. One of the things I do in my work now is I run rehab and prehab sessions for cancer patients at Queen Victoria Hospital in East Grinstead, remotely at the moment, but previously face to face and hopefully again soon. And so I've, you know, I've learned over many years that people handle this stuff in their own way. Some people don't want to know much information. They just want to hear what they need to do today. Other people need to know everything. I was mm. a bit like that. And so, yeah, going into that, that ward, for me, certainly at the beginning, when I felt quite well, and it was the early stages of treatment, I felt like a bit of a fraud. I was surrounded by all these sick people and wondered what I was doing there. And then bit by bit, as the chemo kicked in, I figured that bit out. We've met some amazing women who have gone through cancer treatment. And it's quite incredible and remarkable to see women have a, I don't know what the word is, but you have this, not new life, but you have a new inspiration. You know, nobody wants to have breast cancer, but they, you almost have another perspective on life. Is that how you felt about it? It made me think that everything I had ahead of me was perhaps more precious and not to be taken for granted. I made a kind of vow to myself that if there was anything or anybody in my life that was keeping me awake at night, then they were out. If I don't want anything that's keeping me awake at night, I want to maximise my energy and live my life the best I can. And that's really important. And the other thing I should make clear, and which I do in the book, is that this wasn't all about having chemo, going to the gym, lifting up big weights and just feeling strong all the time. There was also days when I was absolutely in tears, broken, not knowing how I was going to get to the next treatment, absolutely ruined because they couldn't find enough veins to put the needles in my arm. Um, And days when I'd had to tell my children that I had cancer, which was the worst thing I've ever had to do my whole life. It was was absolutely the worst moment ever, and I can't tell you how weak and, and awful I felt about that and throwing that grenade in their world and their young lives. So it's not it's not all about hey I could do this it's all fine there are all it's a roller coaster and there very much are moments yeah. where although women are quite good at going we're resilient we're fine we can do it and um, the truth is if you really scratch the surface and ask them honestly I'd be very surprised if anybody who's been through cancer or anything traumatic and life changing will will tell you that there are days when you absolutely feel like you can't do it mm-hmm. and you have to let those go kind of go okay that was yesterday now let's try again tomorrow I think that's a really an important moment that we strive to do things and and get ourselves better whether we have cancer or not we have other things but there are days when we just have to say I'm not going to do it today yeah I absolutely make that point in my book in fact it's the very last thing I say in the book that there are days that are going to absolutely feel like too much and that's okay take Mm -hmm. all the pressure off go back to basics If you're in the middle of a physical or a mental storm, 
just go back to basics. Do everything you need to do today to keep yourself safe and to get through the basics. Yeah. And if you can do that, let that be enough mm -hmm. and take everything else away. Get rid of all the pressure and then start again tomorrow and just see tomorrow as a new opportunity. And maybe you can just do a tiny weeny bit more than you did the day before. Just a tiny bit. And then that will seem like a win. Yeah. So good. You take that win and you own it and then you go to the next day and just take literally one foot in front of the other one day at a time and don't expect it all to be a bed of roses. It was round about the time of your diagnosis that you changed your career. Was it the cancer that made you reappraise your life and you were talking about that earlier? Was that part of that? Kind of, but I'd started to get more and more interested, as I said, about exercise and nutrition and seeing that if I really got involved with those, I was definitely feeling a lot more capable physically and mentally. I was putting my body in a stronger position and that fascinated me. But also I'd had just under 30 years of the most extraordinary career of doing the only job I ever wanted to do since I was a kid as a journalist, travelling the world. And I was the wrong side of my mid-40s and I decided I'd become a personal trainer. Also in my head, I thought, well, personal trainers don't look like me. They look half my age and <laughs> perhaps very, very different to how I look. So, you know, I'm fit and I'm healthy and I'm into my gym and everything. But maybe if I was going to hire a personal trainer, I wouldn't expect me to rock up. So I kind of thought, you know what, I can write and I can do my job and I can do that forever. So I'll just try this thing and I'm really interested in it and I'm going to study it and I'm going to see if I can get some clients and make it work. And if I can, then great. And if I can't, it's fine. I'll just go back to doing what I was doing before. So what happened was I was getting very frustrated with cancer and wanting to go to some sort of retreat, but a quite no-nonsense thing I was looking for. I didn't want to go and do a load of navel-gazing stuff for a few days with people telling me everything was going to be all right. I wanted practical information about how to look after my body through illness and injury, and I couldn't find it. A friend of mine kindly booked us into a spa and it's still oh, you've got cancer sorry we can't treat you we can't give you a massage even though my oncologist said the amount of stuff that you've had through your veins you know a bit of almond oil isn't going to do you any harm at all wow. um, yeah, that's incredible in this, at that point i think things are changing a bit now perhaps but at that point certainly um you know i was getting turned away from the spa i couldn't even have a simple massage so I was getting quite fed up with that and getting very interested in the exercise and nutrition, as I said, and how that was buoying me up through my treatment. So I thought, right, well, if there isn't one of these fitness holidays, I'm going to create one. So I thought, OK, so what I'll do is I'll go to all the people that have helped me through my treatment and I'll bring them together and we'll go to a nice hotel and we'll create a fitness holiday for people with illness, injury and possibly trauma and see if that helps. So I gathered this team around me of incredible fitness professionals, amazing nutritionists. So I had this lovely guy called Fred Wadhurst. So Fred trains the England cricket team, the England rugby team for their nutrition, lots and lots of Premier League football clubs, etc., etc. So he's extraordinary. I brought in a motivational speaker and I remembered as a journalist interviewing James Cracknell before he had his brain injury and afterwards and he'd managed to get his body back into such extraordinary shape after such a ridiculously awful injury mm. that he managed to run just under sub three hours in the London Marathon. So God. an extraordinary turnaround. So I got in touch with him and said, look, I need somebody to really motivate these people if I'm going to get them down there. So he said, right, I'm in. So I pulled this kind of fitness holiday together 
at a hotel in Hampshire and advertised it and called in a lot of press favours and people wrote lovely things and we had our first fitness holiday of people they were coming back from stroke there were people coming back from brain injury and they're very worried partners people dealing with anxiety and stress and luckily my team was so extraordinary they were able to inspire them give them confidence show them um, that they could do sequential movement that they'd never been able to do before by just breaking it down and then if they could do that, what else could they do? I'm still in touch with some of the people from that first fitness holiday who tell me the things that they're doing now, which are extraordinary. And so this Fitter Stronger retreat was born and my business Fitter Stronger came from there. Then I decided I wanted to get more involved. So then I trained as a personal trainer to take a bigger role within the fitness holidays. And we were having such extraordinary success with those people going on to do extraordinary things that they didn't think personally that they could achieve. Um, but I thought, well, you know, these are adults with at least some life experience behind them. What if we were doing something for young people who didn't have the emotional intelligence built up over the same amount of years to cope with illness, injury and trauma? So I ran one day just to make a big statement that kids need exercise and they need it as much for their mental health as their physical health and they need to know about nutrition in a fun way and understand why it's important and they need to be motivated so I created a day for that it was just going to be a one-off that became a thing called recharge which has now worked with thousands of kids around the country and same kind of thing great feedback I get stopped in the street or I get letters or messages online saying hey miss I'm now doing so and so (laughs) Going back to your book, your great book, Fitter Stronger, what do you want the reader to get out of this book? It was done really with no anticipation. It was um, my story and also lots of practical advice that was important. So there's lots of practical advice in there on exercise, on nutrition, from experts on how to do with loss, how to deal with sleep deprivation. So there are practical bits of advice in there, but the feedback from the book so far has been extraordinary and people have told me it's gone one of two ways I think some people have said that it's breathed fire into them and they're now inspired to go off and do some stuff of their own which is fantastic and other people have said it's made them um, stop and think about what they really want out of their life and to try and think about the direction they're moving in and whether that is the right direction for them. So really, I suppose my intention with the book was really just to say exercise and nutrition is powerful, not just for your physical health, but massively from the neck up and use it, use it to conquer stress. Um, One of the things I find really important in my life, balancing lots of different areas of my business and my family, is to slam the brakes on three times a year. And the main purpose of that is to really sit back and have a look at where I'm going. If things are moving too fast, if they're not moving fast enough and what I want to have more of, what I want to cut away and have less of, what's not really working and then repositioning my map and moving forward from there. And in terms of being fit from the neck up, I really like the saying, whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're probably right. That is so true. I've really enjoyed talking to you today, Paula Kerr, and it's left me inspired, actually. If anyone wants to get your book, Fitter Stronger, it's available from all good bookstores. Thank you very much for joining us today, Paula. It's been great having you as a guest. 
It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it, Linda. That was really, really enjoyable talking to those two women. And I love this life-changing moment. Yes, so that that. Was... I liked what Paula said about three times a year, she takes time out to really appraise everything. Great idea. I yeah. think uh, I think I'm up for a reappraisal at the moment, actually. <laughs> do, you, do you want me to give you one? <laughs> yes. Yes, could you give me my appraisal now? But let's not do it on air. Cause it, no, no, no. It's no. not going to go well. and It's going to turn into a big fight. So let's keep that. <laughs> Let's keep that until after we switch the mic off. So if you know of anybody that you think we should be talking to, a woman who's making waves, either in the community, in business, or wherever, then please do get in touch with us. How can they go about that, Susie? You can contact us via social media, of course, on our Twitter account and Facebook, both at WomenMW and, of course, on Instagram at Women Making Waves Radio. Where else can you find us? Well, you can find us on Cambridge 105 Radio on their website or on our website, womenmakingwaves.co.uk, where you can find all of our interviews. Thank you very much to Isabella Moore at CBE and also to Paula Kerr for being an amazing guest today. We'll be back with you shortly. Bye. Bye for now. Bye.